Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Morning, church. It is good to see all of you here today. My name is Michael. I'm the lead pastor here. If I haven't met you yet, I hope to have a chance to meet you soon. I'll be in the cafe afterwards and I'd love to greet you. You are here with us while we're going through a series in the Gospel of Luke. And we're in the middle of the book right now. And we're going through a particular section of teaching, uh, of, of the teaching of Jesus. So there's some parables and some teachings of Jesus. And the teaching we're at today is about tempting other people to sin. Tempting others to sin. Or as Jesus put it, it is better to have a millstone tied around your neck and to be thrown into the ocean than to tempt one of these little ones to sin, as Jesus says. So this warning that we're going to look at in a moment, it implies an obligation uh, first, not to lead people into sin, but also to help people to avoid sin. Or you could say to spur one another on to love and good works and faithfulness, obedience to Christ. So do you ever find yourself rooting against somebody's growth in Christ? You probably think, no way. Not so fast. I think it's a common thing. I think we can find ourselves at times hoping somebody does not grow or does, is not sanctified in a particular way because of something in us. And we're going to explore those things today. But what Jesus tells us to do is to, to encourage and to point people towards growth and sanctification being the, uh, the 50 cent word for growth in Christ and being purified of sin. And we'll talk about how we can do that together. So... Another Christian's growth is a sort of accountability, and that's, that's the issue. Another Christian's growth is like an accountability for us, and another Christian's sin is like an excuse for us, and that's what we want to unpack today. So if we love our sin, then buckle up. This is not going to be, uh, it'll be a little uncomfortable as we talk about ways that we can do this. So let's uh, dig in. We're in Luke chapter 17, Luke chapter 17. And we are going to look at four verses today. Four verses. Over there? All right. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The word of the Lord. Let's go through this again more slowly. First point is you will surely face temptation. You will surely face temptation. And that's what Jesus said here. He said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. Temptations to sin are sure to come. So temptations to sin, what are those? What are temptations to sin? 
Uh, some, uh, some commentaries refer to this as a snare. It is, uh, it is some trap or a stumbling block, something that causes you to lose your way and you stumble into sin. So it could be something that causes you to sin or someone that causes you to sin. And so it could be anything that would cause you to lessen or forsake your faith in Christ and your allegiance to Jesus. And Jesus said that these temptations are sure to come, meaning they're inevitable. They're certain, right? So we live in a fallen world, and that means that there are temptations everywhere. We live in a world where the world, the flesh, and the devil are, are uh, just a regular feature of life. And so these are things that are normal and to be expected. And so that much is certain. There's no way around it. We're constantly faced with various temptations, and as Christians... We don't take that lightly. Jesus doesn't take it lightly, obviously, as we've read. So as Christians, we should not take that lightly. We should should be serious about the fact that there is sin in the world, and we want to be holy and sanctified and, and purified and to be obedient, even though we are faced with temptations. But we desire to know and love and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. And so what that means is that every Christian should dedicate himself or herself to a life that honors Christ, and that'll consist of a couple of things. Positively, that is a life of holiness or good works, a life of obedience where you're doing things proactively to demonstrate your faith and commitment to Jesus. And then negatively, avoiding things that would be sinful and dishonoring to God. So there's a proactive part, uh, and there's a, a, a more of a negative part, a reactive part, where we're, we're pr- trying to avoid sin in our lives. A couple of uh, quotes here. Thomas Watson is a Puritan author, and he said, The devil hunts more as a fox than as a lion, and his snares are worse than his darts. So he's saying that being caught in a trap or a snare, as Jesus says here, that's one of, one of Satan's great tactics. And then Ambrose, he said, the devil's snare does not catch you unless you are first caught by the devil's bait. So he'll lay a snare for you and draw you into it, and then there you're, you're caught. Jesus is warning us against this. So we'll just, as, before we move on, I'll just uh, say this word to you. If you are, if there's a particular temptation in your life that you can identify and you're aware of it, and it's been troubling you, Jesus Jesus gives us, what could, we could consider this a word of reassurance that these things are to be expected. Christians should expect that there are going to be things in our lives that will afflict us, will tempt us. There will be snares and traps that we might fall into. Jesus says, expect that. They're sure to come because this is the, this is the, the reality of a fallen world. So don't give up. Don't let it get you down. This is something that is routine for Christians that will face these things. And we can also say that God is sovereign over these things that we face. So there's, there's, these things are not beyond God's control. And God in his own providence can work in such a way that he will bring about a good thing, good out, bring about good results from the fact that you are having to face it. So God will use this to strengthen you. As you overcome the temptation, as you face the challenge and you believe Christ and you do something difficult that strengthens you and makes you a a stronger Christian. And so Jesus reminds us that while we live in a fallen world, this will always be the case. 
We're always going to face temptations. And not only that, God is sanctifying us through them. So take heart. God has a good thing he's doing. And we can resist temptation. We can overcome sin. That's one of the, one of the, the great truths of the Christian faith is that Jesus doesn't save us from our sin to leave us in it. But he saves us from our sin and we are sanctified, meaning we are made pure over time. We call this, it's progressive, meaning that it is slow and it is, you know, little by little. But we're always growing. We're always being sanctified. So you can get stronger. If you're afflicted by a sin or temptation around, you can overcome it. That's a promise. That's, it's something that you can, you can believe God to give you the strength to learn the self-control. And eventually, over time, sin will even lose its appeal to you. Well, let's keep moving. So temptations to sin are sure to come, so it's going to happen. Nevertheless, woe to the one, woe to the one through whom they come. So you don't want to be the agent that brings about the temptation in somebody else's life. You don't want to be someone else's snare where Satan uses you to tempt another person. And so Jesus goes on to give this warning. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So the word but here. Uh, one of my commentaries, it says this is in, a, in the original language. It's in an emphatic position. Uh, so in our, you know, in our day and age, we would say we should, it should be in all caps and highlighted and underlined with exclamation points. So if we go back, Jesus said, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. So there's a, a word of reassurance, hey, this is normal, but don't be the agent that brings that difficulty into another Christian's life. So even though it's inevitable, we don't want to be the source or the cause of the temptation. So Christians, we should not encourage one another to sin. And then Jesus gives us this graphic metaphor of a millstone. So if you, like a millstone I guess this table here would probably be maybe similar in size, but imagine this table were made out of rock, pure rock, and they would roll it around and it would crush grain, and so it could weigh several hundred pounds. And Jesus said, better that you take this thing, put a rope around it, tie it around your neck, and make a millstone necklace and throw you into the ocean than that you should tempt somebody in this room to sin against God. He said, it's better for that to happen. It'd be better to, to drown than to be the agent of somebody's sin. So as I said earlier, there's, the warning implies an obligation, not, not only to not lead people into sin, but also to help people to avoid sin. Because we are all moving the same direction. We're all helping one another on the way to glory. So salvation by grace is not a license to sin. Or it's not a making light of sin. And it's not a dismissing sin or overlooking sin as though it's no big deal. Whenever Jesus uses this phrase, little ones, I kind of wrote over it. Let me see if I can, can I fix that. Let me just do this. Little ones. What is little ones? 
Obviously, that would include children. And I think that's the, the, the first thing that comes to mind when we read this. We think, oh, Jesus is talking about little kids. And he is. But not only little kids, and we'll get to that in a moment. But for now, we'll, 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 t- we'll talk about um, the temptation that, as it is directed towards children. And they're obviously the most vulnerable. They're the ones that need the most help and could be most easily tempted or trapped or, or being led into sin. And the fact of the reality is the devil hates children. The devil hates kids. He hates kids because he hates the God whose image they bear. And he hates kids because they represent the future. They represent opportunity. They represent uh, a chance for, for things to get better. And so Satan is, is proactive and he will want a little children to be led into sin in order to capture the future, to win the future by winning the current winning the children. Now, what is good for kids, kids, obviously, they need to grow up um, in this world. So they're, they're going to be exposed to, to sin and, and temptations, but there is a way that you go about it. And the way that you would go about it is that the exposure to sin and temptation, wickedness and evil in the world is gradual, and they're able to slowly and gradually be exposed to the evils and dangers in the world in these limited doses. But it's not everything all at once. That, is, that, that would be overwhelming for a child and it would tempt a child to sin. But Satan wants to corrupt children. He wants to expose them to things that would lead them to sin, that would lead them to, to embrace his way of thinking and his, his rebellion against God, get them to be his army, of his uh, people that were participating in the wickedness that he wants to sow in the world. And so he corrupts them by exposing them to constant propaganda that normalizes evil. So a child, whatever they experience in their younger years will be experienced by them as normal because they have no other point of reference. And so the earlier you can capture a child's heart and mind, the easier it is to make permanent the corruption that you plant in their heart. And so it it is strategic, if nothing else, for Satan to capture the hearts of children. That's why we talked about this a few weeks ago in our Future Proof series. It is also, likewise, strategic for Christians to do the same for us to protect our children and for us to make normal for them the things of God and prayer and worship and scripture and, and learning about God and obeying God. That, we want that to be the normative experiences for them in early childhood. So children are, are strategic for both the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And so there is a, there is a battle. There is, a, there is an effort underfoot to capture the hearts of children always. This is always a thing. So I'm I'm sure we'd all agree that in recent years, our culture has become increasingly sexualized and decadent. Jesus said, expect, temptations are sure to come. So that should not be a surprise to us in any given age that there uh, there are unique ways that sin manifests itself or wickedness happens in any given generation. That should not surprise us. But we also want to be mindful of in any given generation, what are the trend lines? What, are, what is happening? What is, what, what is Satan up to now that might be unique in our time so that way we can discern it and be prepared for it? So something that is going on now in our day is that children are being explicitly targeted for sexualization and abuse by grown-ups. Now, I'm not going to get into the details of it because um, some of you may be blissfully unaware and um, I'm not going to detail it now, but, but it's happening. 
It is happening where children are being targeted for sexualization and abuse to where talking about certain subjects in places that are inappropriate with people that are inappropriate is becoming normal for kids. Now, on the one hand, you might say, well, there's always been predators. That's true. There's always been predators who groom children, who lie and manipulate children in order to abuse them. So what's different now, Michael? What's different now as opposed to the thing that's always happened? Well, I'll tell you now. What's different now is that the predators are more respectable. The predators hold the levers of power in our culture. And so the predators are often at work in media and entertainment and in schools and in libraries and in government and in hospitals. Predators are now at work in those areas too, causing little ones to sin, leading little ones into harm. Now you might think, well, how have they made it respectable? They make it respectable by the way we talk about it and by obscuring the realities that's actually happening. So we'll say things like, well, this is, we need, uh, we need healthy sex education for children. That sounds, oh, okay, well, that sounds great. Uh, stranger at my, you know, kid's school, that sounds great. You teach my kid healthy sex education, not knowing what the actual message is. Or we'll call things care. So let's say health care or women's reproductive care. What's that? Oh, you're talking about abortion. You're talking about killing children. Okay, we're, we're harming those that are most vulnerable. But we talk about it in such a way that obscures the actual act that's going on. Um, last few years, more recently, gender-affirming care has, been, um, has become a lucrative business in the pharmaceuticals and medical industry, hormone blockers and things of that sort. Corrupting children, sexualizing children, uh, children who couldn't get an aspirin from the school nurse at 17 years old without a permission slip from the mother can be pulled out and corrupted by, you know, somebody on staff at a school or a counselor or a teacher or something that has, a person has an agenda. Now, I'm not saying that this is every school and every person, every teacher, but these things do happen and they happen with enough frequency that it's, it's, a, it's a warning that these things are Jesus' warning. Hey, woe to those who do this. Woe to those who would cause one of these little ones to sin. So Jesus doesn't mince words. It would be better to give them a millstone necklace and throw them into the ocean than to cause one of these little ones to sin. And now before anybody thinks, Pastor Michael's inciting violence. I'm not saying that. Jesus didn't tell us to actually do that thing. He's just saying that would be in terms of, in terms of God's judgment, the way God views it, and the... the the, what the judgment will be of God on their soul. He's saying it'll be that serious. It'll, it'll, be, it'll be that. Um, the, the judgment of God is against those who do such things. Now, as I said, the phrase little ones isn't limited to children. So the, the phrase is, it has a broad enough meaning that it can encompass anyone who is spiritually weak or vulnerable, somebody who is a brand new Christian. And at our church, um, we have, that's pretty common. We have, we have lots of folks here that, that are part of our, uh, they come to our gatherings, many of whom do not know Jesus yet, some of whom are recent converts, uh, people that are just learning uh, what it means to be a Christian, along with others that are older in their faith. 
So in this environment, Jesus is calling us to be aware of those in our midst that are spiritually vulnerable or new or immature in the faith because they're a newer Christian. And Jesus is saying, consider how your actions might affect them. Don't become a source of temptation for them. So you might be strong in one area and another Christian might be weak in an area and the area you're strong in is an area of great temptation for that other person. So Jesus is saying, be aware of that and don't, don't uh, put them in a position where they're being tempted to sin, where you might be putting a snare in their path by, uh, by acting in such a way that would, would cause them to be tempted. And this is because God cares about his people. He cares about our sanctification. It is important for us to be able to, to grow in a healthy environment where there's, there's mutual accountability and support and encouragement in our collective progressive growth in Christ. So the bottom line here is it's, it's hard enough to overcome Satan's temptations. Don't make it harder by tempting people yourself. So let's... Let's keep going. Verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. We'll just, just stop there. Pay attention to yourselves. So what is, what is Jesus telling us to do here? He's inviting some reflection, right? Be aware of yourself. Pay attention to your behavior, your thoughts, your actions. Take the log out of your eye. Be, be aware of what you're doing and examine yourself. So what I want to do is I want to talk about why... Anybody would ever consider tempting somebody else to sin. Because when I said this earlier in the introduction, you might have thought to yourself, well, I'd never do that. I'm not the kind of person that tries to deliberately entice a person to sin. What kind of weirdo, creepy Christian would do that sort of thing? Well, as I want to show you, it's, this temptation is in all of us, including myself. And I want, to, I want to show you how subtle it can be. So how might we be complicit in another Christian's temptation? How might we even encourage another Christian's downfall? I got four things, four ways, um, four reasons, I guess, that we might do this. The first one is because it enables you to sin. You might tempt another Christian to sin because doing so enables you to sin. So it's pretty, pretty simple and straightforward. It's easier for you to sin when the people around you are sinning too, Right? <laughs> When it's just kind of the thing people do, when it's sort of the, the it's, a, it's a cultural norm, it's just all my friends are doing it, it's easier for you to do the thing that all your friends are doing. So let me give you some, some practical examples. Say a man is tempted sexually to sleep with his girlfriend. Well, he's going to need to tempt her to sin in order to follow through with that. So let's say a woman, she, she's tempted to slander somebody or tempted by gossip She's going to need someone else to listen to her and go along with it and not point it out. Let's say a, a kid in school is tempted to cheat on his homework. He's going to need somebody else to let him copy the answers in tournament, whatever the version would be. But we don't sin in isolation. A lot of times any person's sin is, is going to require the cooperation of other people who have their own sin that they're trying to protect. And it's like, you know, this sin that I want to do kind of lines up nicely with this sin you want to do. And uh, I might like to gossip. You might like to hear gossip, you know. You know, let's be friends, you know. We'll, we'll, we have this partnership we can establish. Whenever, what Jesus is saying is like, hey, pay attention to yourselves. 
Watch out because that, you could be laying a snare for another Christian and letting them walk into sin because of some sin that you yourself want to commit. Sin doesn't like being lonely. Sin likes to have friends around. It likes to have other sins that can help enable, enable it. It needs friends to come along. And whenever there's a Christian, Christians who love their sin and don't want to repent of it, they have an incentive to tempt other people to sin as well. So think of it this way. Whenever one Christian is committed to holiness, one Christian's holiness creates an unspoken accountability. And it can break that cycle of complicity in another person's life. So let's say uh, somebody is starting to gossip and they're saying like, well, you know, you know about Roger, don't you? You haven't heard about Roger? Well, probably shouldn't say, but the other day, the other person could be like, oh, hold on. This gossip, you know, I'd rather not say anything further, you know. That, that breaks it off. But you might be thinking, well... I've kind of had my doubts about Roger <laughs> myself. He's kind of weird, and uh, I've, always, I've always thought he was up to something, and I'd rather hear than, than, than not hear. Um, but I'm not the one saying it. I'm not gossiping, you know. She's the one gossiping. I'm just, I'm just being a Christian. I'm, I'm listening, you know, quick to listen, slow to speak. I'm doing what the Bible says, right? I'm just going to listen. When actually you are, it's a kind of stumbling block. It's kind of a leading them to temptation by creating an environment that gives them permission to do the sin that they are tempted by. So whenever one Christian says, you know, I want to commit to holiness and I'm going to not participate in it, one, it makes it awkward for the other person. Other person might even get frustrated with you. You might even find that other Christians are annoyed with you because you've done the thing that forces accountability back upon them. And now they have to examine themselves. And they'll either get mad at you. I wasn't gossiping. What's the matter with you, judgy? Or they could be like, you know, you're right. You're right. I, I was about to say something. And then, in that case, you've helped each other. You've helped that person, and, and they've helped you. And you've, you've been able to hold one another accountable. And you've been able to identify something. And that would probably create a memory for them that would, that would last for a while. It would last in such a way that it would be like, you know, uh, last time I started to tell a story like this, I got called out on it. I remember that because anytime we feel uncomfortable, we're more likely to form a memory. And that, that's, that's like an accountability memory that can, that can last for a while. And that's, that's what a healthy Christian community will do for one another. So if, if you have a group of Christians that are grumbling and nobody says anything, then grumbling becomes normalized and accepted. It's, it's what we do. We're just talking. And if nobody says, hey, I think this is grumbling. I think we're, we're kind of, uh, we have a grumbling spirit here. If, if nobody identifies it, well, then everybody thinks, well, everybody here is Christian, so this must be fine. Nobody said anything. And so it takes somebody to, to, to break that cycle and to say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to not participate at the very least. Or maybe say something. And if one person refuses to participate, sure, it'll, it'll create some discomfort possibly. But it's, it's, a, it's a form of accountability. And it might even be an unspoken accountability where it's, it's not like, I rebuke you for grumbling. 
It could be more of an unspoken accountability where there's just, yeah, that was right. We both knew that was, that was growing and, and that it's helped. Point being, it's easier to sin when your social environment tolerates it, accepts it, or even celebrates it. But we as Christians, we have, we can control that. We can control what we do and how we engage. Pay attention to yourselves, Jesus said. Here's a second one. You might be tempted to uh, tempt somebody else because it soothes your conscience. It soothes your conscience. So, let's face it, sometimes the failure of another person feels good. It reminds us that we're human. Nobody likes being around somebody who's always got it together all the time, right? I mean, there's a, a people like that are just annoying. <laughs> like, don't you have any flaws? Don't you have any sin that you struggle with at all? And so it, whenever somebody that annoys you in that way, whenever they have a, whenever they take a tumble, all right, you're human too. I kind of feel better about myself now that you have sinned. <laughs> and so there might be, we might have an incentive in our own heart to enjoy that or to maybe even create the conditions where that person could sin. Because it's a lot easier to compare myself with somebody else who is sinning in a similar way than to compare myself with God who never will fail, who will never let me down, and who will never sin. And in one sense, there's comfort in knowing that God will never fail. And in another sense, it's comforting when other people do fail. And so what, we can have our consciences soothed and we can feel better about ourselves by other people tumbling. So if they're experiencing victory in the very sin that you're still struggling with, what can make you feel guilty? And, you know, if it's me, maybe, maybe I don't want to deal with that right now. Maybe part of me doesn't want them to have victory because if they have victory over the same sin I'm struggling with, that proves to me victory is possible. And if victory is possible, then I'm out of excuses. Then now it's like, well, it's on you, Michael. It's like, Somebody else did it. Somebody else trusted God, believed the gospel, and the power of the Spirit stepped out in faith, and they, they had victory over a sin. And here's you. You're still, you're still sinning in the same way. Now you've, you've seen somebody else has modeled for you a path forward. So now I'm out of excuses. But if they stumble and fall back to sin, I'm off the hook. So I might, I might be encouraged to accelerate their downfall or to, to do something that would cause them to sin. Whenever we're cherishing a particular sin, we'll do anything to avoid repenting of it, even if it's leading others to sin or pulling them down. All right, number three, um, you don't want to be challenged. You don't want to be challenged. So let's say you've reached a spiritual plateau and you're comfortably complacent. And so you think there's no live issue in my life right now that is really vexing me and I kind of like it that way and I don't want anybody to disturb my comfort but then some zealot shows up and he's praying more than I am now, in fact I'm, I'm seeing a, a fervency and a zeal in his life that challenges me that makes me realize well my prayer life isn't sinful or wrong but he's taking it to another level he loves scripture and is more dedicated to studying the word of God than I am. It's like, everybody thinks I'm smart with the Bible now and this other guy's going to take some of my good press. 
Let's say he's found victory and sanctification in other areas. Like he is walking with God and is, is experiencing a level of victory that challenges me and makes me feel pressured to, to excel still more. And I really don't want to. I'm kind of content coasting right now. Well, maybe it'd be, maybe I might just dislike that person and maybe I'd be tempted to make it harder for them or tempt them in some way and, and secretly wish for their downfall because I'm jealous. All right, here's the fourth one. You might be tempted to tempt somebody else to sin because you don't fear God. And now this is the scariest one of all because somebody who doesn't fear God is in a great danger. I want to read to you from Psalms. This is Psalm 36, verses 1 through 4. And just see how what we've been talking about lines up with the psalm. Transgression speaks to the wicked. Are we on here? Okay. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. So it may not be out on the surface. It may not be like, I think I want to go murder somebody someday. No, it's more like, I have this quiet, low-grade, seething hatred for that person. It's deep, deep deep down in the heart transgression is speaking to me there is no fear of God before his eyes what does that mean it means I don't really care what God thinks there could be a hundred different reasons why that would be the state of my soul but I just yeah I know it's a sin yeah I know the Bible says God judge it but I'm a Christian so whatever Jesus forgave it there's no fear of God He flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. Now, it could be I'm secretly nursing this sin and I don't think anybody is ever going to see it. I think it could also be this thing is buried so deep and I've not paid attention to myself like Jesus said in the previous verse we looked at. I never opened my eyes and examined myself in such a way to where I will see it. So I'm flattering myself saying like, I'm solid. I'm a good, solid Christian. There's no, there's no obvious wickedness out there, and I'm just, I'm, I'm good. People respect me. People look up to me. People think I'm mature. I'm a leader. Secretly, you're flattering yourself in your own eyes, thinking that the deeper things that are hidden, maybe you don't see it, or maybe you do see it, but you've got it safely hidden, tucked away. You think nobody will ever know this secret thing. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. So if that's where you are, that's like, you, you might think that you are solid, but not so fast. Cease to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed, sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. So you're talking about a person who makes light of sin, doesn't really give it much thought, not really a big deal, while flattering himself that he's like really solid believer. I'm on the up and up. I'm teaching a class. I'm leading a group. I'm, I've got a little cohort of guys that I'm pouring into. But really, there's, there's this thing. I mean, we wonder, how do these great, fruitful Christian leaders that have wonderful ministries, how do they fall 
and we find out they've been doing this horrible thing for 20 years. This is how it happens. They flattered themselves. They think, I'm great. I'm, I'm, I'm legit. I'm a legit Christian. I have all these people that look up to me. But there's no fear of God, meaning they think, I can continue to sin the way I want to sin. I can keep this thing hidden. I can make excuses for it. I can minimize it, downplay it. It's not a big deal. And there are people looking to me. They're following my lead. I'm setting an example for them. They are following me down my path. They're doing the things that I'm doing. All the while, they think they are following me on a path of righteousness when really there is a destructive sin and I'm leading them there and I've got a train of followers coming right behind me and I'm leading all of these little ones to sin. God, help us if you do that. Because it'd be better for you to be, have this millstone necklace tied around your neck and tossed in the Ohio River than for you to be that guy. The thing that will break it is the fear of God. And the fear of God is saying, judgment is coming. God sees you. God sees what you're doing. You cannot hide from his gaze. The white holiness, the brightness of the light of his holiness and his character will shine and expose everything. May it come in this life while you have chance to repent and be reconciled to God. But may it not come in the next life when it's too late to repent. True believers hate sin. If you're a true Christian, you hate sin. If you don't hate sin, forgive me for saying it, if you don't hate sin, you got a question, are you a Christian? Because if you don't hate it, then how do you feel about it? Maybe you kind of like it. Maybe you kind of love it. So don't flatter yourself. True Christians don't avoid the truth. They're willing to accept the truth of who they are, of what they've done. They confess it to the Lord and say, God, have mercy, forgive me. I have a, I have a, prayer, um, a prayer book. And uh, it is, uh, uh, doesn't matter what it is. It's a, it's a prayer book that I, I read. Uh, it's just got lots of daily prayers. And I'm, I'm, I'm struck because it's like ancient prayers from like church fathers over the last two centuries or two millennia rather. And so, so frequent, so common is this Christ have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. Uh, the, like the Christ prayer, Lord have mercy on me, a sinner. I believe that's our t- text for next week. Like the two guys go in the temple to pray. But it's, it's, that is just a regular feature of the Christian life. Have mercy on me, God, because I'm a sinner. I see sin and I hate it. And I want you to purge me of it. And I want to experience some of the life of eternity and sanctification that you will give to me. I want some of that now. Purge me, help me, God. That's, a, that's what a Christian feels, how a Christian views sin. They hate it. So any absence of the fear of God that, that plays itself out, and frankly, I would say an absence of the fear of God is epidemic in modern Christianity. And it's because we abuse the grace of God. The very thing that Paul talked about in the book of Romans, shall we sin that grace may abound? Paul says emphatically, no. A lot of modern evangelicals say, that sounds kind of (laughs) cool. I think maybe I will sin and look at the grace of God. Look how much God has forgiven me. And we, we use the grace of God as an excuse or a license to sin. Being obedient is a part of the Christian life. It's a non-negotiable. 
And I think that's why Jesus uses such a resting language, language of a millstone. I mean, it's, it's vivid, right? I mean, it's like, gosh, that's horrible, Jesus. Why do you talk that way? It's because Jesus is like, it is that serious. Now, here's the thing. It's where we started, and it's where we'll end. Temptations to sin are what? They're sure to come, right? So we're all going to face stumbling blocks. We're all going to face temptations. They're sure to come. Now, we don't want to help each other out and knock each other over the stumbling block. But we want to pay attention to ourselves so that we can be careful as we walk. We can be careful to, to try to avoid sin. And that's, it isn't legalism to try to be holy. It isn't legalism to try to obey God. That's just being a Christian. So hindrance or temptations to sin are sure to come, and we can either help each other or we can hinder each other along that path. Jesus is saying, don't hinder each other, help each other. Sin doesn't like being lonely, and so everybody's going to be tempted by it. Don't make it worse. All right, last couple of verses. If your brother sins, rebuke him. So if he sins, here's your response. And if he, res- if he repents, here's your response. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. That's the gospel. After warning about the causes of temptation, he instructs us to live by the ethics of the gospel. And this dynamic has two sides to it. There's the accountability side and there's the forgiveness side, both of which are anchored in the character of God. So the accountability side is the first one that we saw here. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Point it out. Like, say, hey, it sounds like grumbling. I'm not going to do that. Sounds like gossip. Um, I'm going to step out. I'm not going to participate in that. That's, that's the accountability side. Rather than being a source of temptation, you can be a source of restoration, of, of helping them to see the sin that you see. And so you don't want to encourage them in and neg them on. Rather, you rebuke him. Now, rebuke it's an ugly word, and it, we might think it sounds like we're supposed to be harsh. And that rebuke need not be harsh. A rebuke can be very calm. You could say, brother, I love you, that's sin. You should repent of that and follow Christ. I mean, it doesn't have to be harsh. It could be loving and gentle and patient. Just tell the other person it was a sin. With the aim not being condemnation, where it's like, I got to get this off my chest, you idiot. You're in sin. Repent. Believe the gospel, stupid. I mean, no, of course we wouldn't do that. The aim is not just to, you've got to call it out. The aim is, I want to help you believe the gospel. I want to help you to, to grow in sanctification. And since we're aiming to persuade them, usually you don't have to do much persuading. If, if the Holy Spirit is within the heart of a true believer, a humble heart is going to respond. The Holy Spirit will confirm in their heart the loving rebuke that you spoke to them. The other side is forgiveness. That's the restoration part. So you have accountability and forgiveness. And forgiveness is where grace upon grace is needed and grace upon grace is applied to their life. Hey, you're forgiven. I forgive you. And of course, you're a Christian. Jesus forgives you. God forgives you. And hey, temptations to sin are sure to come. That's okay. You've repented. So believe the gospel. Enjoy the grace and forgiveness of Christ. The gospel and the grace is richly supplied in Jesus. 
most of you are probably not like this. But personally, I don't enjoy having people call me out on my sin. Maybe you're different. Some of you are spiritual masochists. Just give me more. Beat me up in Christ's name or something. But for me, my pride gets wounded. And it, it hurts my ego. And I can feel embarrassed. I don't like feeling embarrassed. Sometimes I feel condemned. I don't like that either. But that's not the other person's fault. It's not them condemning me. It's, it's the word of God pointing out my sin and me having to believe the truth of the gospel. So even though I don't like it, they are loving me. And they're obeying Jesus. They're helping me become more holy. And they're reminding me of the hope of the gospel. Let me show you one last verse. 1 John. My little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. We talked about it earlier. If you're a Christian, you hate sin. It doesn't mean you won't sin. It means that when you sin, you hate it. And you don't want to do it. And you want Jesus to give you victory over it. If you're going to have temptation, you're going to have struggle. That's sure to come. That's a normal part of Christian life. But you don't settle there. You let Jesus change you. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That means that whenever you sin, you take it to the Father. Father, I've sinned again. I gossiped again. I hated that person again. I committed sexual immorality again. I looked at pornography again. I did whatever the thing is that convicts you. I did that thing again. Now, John says, I'm writing you this letter. Here's why I'm writing this letter. So that you won't sin. I'm writing you this letter to remind you that you can have victory. But whenever you stumble, which is sure to happen because temptations are sure to come. When you do stumble, don't give up because you have an advocate. Who's your advocate? Jesus. How does he describe Jesus? the righteous. I love that. Not just Jesus, the holy, Jesus, the judge, but Jesus, the righteous. He is the one who is righteous where you aren't. And by faith in Christ, his righteousness is applied to you. And how many times does he forgive you? Seven times, seven times, seven times, seven times, seven in infinity. He forgives us because his grace is an abundant supply and it never runs out. This is normal Christian community. I have friends that have rebuked me, some of whom are in this room. I'm still mad about it. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> they've rebuked me, they've, and they've shown me forgiveness. They've helped me. They've, they've challenged me, and I've grown. Because even though I stand up here, put a mic on my head, and read the Bible to you and, and preach, it doesn't mean that I don't have areas where I need to grow and that I need brothers and sisters in my life that will say, Michael, not cool, dude. <laughs> cut that out. I'm like, yeah, okay, that was over the line. Or I might get angry and frustrated and bitter and uh, negative and defensive. And then a few days later, okay, you were right. <laughs> but this is normal Christian community. We help each other. I want, I, want, I want to be a help to you. I want us to be a help to one another. We can help each other. And we help each other by saying, hey, here was the thing. But here's, your, here's forgiveness and let me tell you about Jesus, remind you, make sure you're believing the gospel, knowing that Christ forgive you too. He's the advocate. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous. And by living in this way, collectively, 
we can short circuit the power of sin and we could see some of us running on out ahead with maturity and growth in Christ that can inspire the little ones, little children and those who are young in the faith. New believers can spur us all on together as we grow in Christ and as more people come to Christ and they become new little ones, then they can join the train and together we're headed towards growth and holiness. May that be the way that we are forever, that God will supply his grace and purify us in this way as a church. All right, let's pray. We thank you, our Father, for, um, for sending Christ, your Son, to be our advocate. Thank you, Jesus, that you came in obedience to the Father and you, you stepped into our world and you stepped into our skin so that you can face all manner of temptations and stumbling blocks, but you never sinned once, not in any way, because you are Jesus Christ, the righteous. And we thank you that by your death on the cross, our sins are covered and paid for the penalty, and, and now we can run to you as our, our father and know that we are adopted as your sons and daughters, and Christ being our advocate, the righteous one, forgiving us, and we see on your face a smile of warmth and welcome and love because of your grace. And may we never abuse that grace, but may that grace be the fuel of our sanctification. And we thank you that this is the reality we get to live in. We worship you and we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.